Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good afternoon, Arizona. Welcome to the Logitimate Podcast with your hosts, Mike and Rochelle Poulton, where we share our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Poulton. I'm the managing partner of Poulton & Naroyan, a civil litigation and business law firm here in central Phoenix. I'm also a real estate investor, inventor, and do some other stuff. This is my lovely life, wife, Rochelle. Uh, she is also an attorney, a managing partner at the Arizona Credit Law Group, which is a group of companies, including Firm, that does financial, consumer financial law, uh, debt settlement, uh, credit repair, all kinds of things like that. Fun Rochelle, stuff. you want to introduce our guests? Yes. And with us, we have two awesome guests from Cressa. We have Senior Vice President Jason Malcolm and Senior Vice President Jeffrey Garza Walker here to talk about commercial leasing. Commercial leasing is such a broad, crazy topic. Um, so we're just going to skip all of our normal stuff, no rackets, no LBL, and go straight into the topic. So those of you who listen to us regularly have probably heard a fair bit about commercial leasing. It's something that we bring up all Every time. time it fits. <laughs> and part of the reason for that is that both Rochelle and I run into commercial leasing issues pretty often in our practices. I represent a lot of tenant businesses and a small number of commercial landlords. Uh, I own one commercial property that I occupy myself, and I find the commercial real estate world quite interesting. So it's something that I help my clients with and something I'm personally involved with. And Rochelle, since many of her clients are also business owners, ends up dealing with the financial aspects of commercial leasing from the tenant side on a pretty regular basis. So in the wanted, fallout. Yeah, in the fallout. I wasn't going to say it, but <laughs> <laughs> we both end up dealing with fallout. Uh, <laughs> and preventing it. <laughs> yes. Um, so we have our guests today from Cressa. Uh, Cressa is a company which helps tenants in commercial relationships. So businesses who are leasing space or who occupy their own space. And what makes Cressa different from a lot of other companies involved in the commercial real estate sector is they exclusively represent uh, owner occupants and owner occupants of commercial properties, if I'm getting that right. Uh, And I'll let them fill in details on what they do. But that is a niche aspect of the commercial real estate business that many companies do not service. Uh, And so let's have them tell us a little bit more about what they do and what makes Cressa distinct. Yes, go for it, Jason. I think we lost you guys. (laughs) They're looking pretty frozen there. (laughs) We'll add you back. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) We're back. So uh, I don't don't know where we cut out there, but I was just uh, pitching it over to you guys to talk a little about what Cressa does and what makes you different from a lot of other companies in the commercial real estate sector. So, and you touched on it, we're, we're an advocate for tenants. That's the only side of the transaction that we're working on. And, you know, really it, the commercial real estate world, it, it's, it's not a fair fight for the tenants. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, owners have teams of professionals and attorneys and tax consultants, and the tenant comes along and they don't necessarily have an advocate. We, that's where we fit in. So it's, it's a great resource for anyone out there looking for space and uh, not only needing to find it, but navigate through that process. Awesome. So what's your role at Cressa? Uh, I'm on the transaction management side. So we are out in the field finding the available spaces, uh, keeping up with market trends, uh, where rates are, where there are concessions, um, familiar with all the 
the important aspects of those negotiations that might not be on the forefront, but are important over the long term. Renewal options, options to terminate, how the operating expenses are broken down. So there's there's a lot more to uh, the rental rate and, and, and the tenant improvement allowance. And that's where we really come in with the knowledge and experience of working through that process. So a lot of what you've got to offer is that you know what kind of a deal somebody should be able to get because you see a lot of deals. That's a fair statement, yeah. Yeah, and it's always changing. I mean, it's trending up, trending down. Real estate itself is a cyclical industry, and it's it's always at one point or the other. Uh, you know, you, you'll probably never be successful in trying to time that cycle. <laughs> Uh, it, it certainly is. It's always moving, and that's where keeping a, a strong pulse on the market is is really critical. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Well, a lot of our audience consists of very small business owners, including people who are self-employed or working uh, without a, phys- a physical location. And at some point, many of those people are going to end up needing their first commercial space. So if you were going to give your top two tips, two pieces of advice for someone who's a new business owner and is going to be coming into commercial space for the first time, what are the two things that you would say to them? And of course, I know there are five dozen things they ought to know, but the top two for a new commercial tenant, what do they need to know? And Jeffrey, you should go ahead and introduce yourself as well. Okay, so the top two tips, the first one that pops into my mind is timing. Uh, the process for a real estate um, deal to begin and actually someone sitting in that space and operating is a lot longer than most people anticipate. Uh, And it varies depending on the size of the user, the complexity of the space they need. Is it a manufacturing use or is it just typical office space, right? So depending on some of those factors, timing is certainly... Uh, a, a misunderstanding, you know, someone might think it'll take 60 days, but uh, that's, that's very rare and um, it could drag out for quite a while. Uh, so that, that would be one. What would another good tip be, Jeff? Yeah, so I would just say, you know, just like with Legitimate, uh, you know, it's like I ask people, are you a person that does TurboTax or do you want a professional that does your taxes? And <laughs> TurboTax, guess what? You get your taxes done, but you're probably going to wind up paying or you're going to break even or you're going to make a mistake and then the IRS is going to notify you of that mistake. Or you can hire a professional that's going to negotiate and do that on your behalf and they're going to be able to get you really the best opportunities. And that's what we are. We're advisors. We're here to protect your interests. And that's the one thing with Crescent being conflict-free by not representing landlords, those evil owners, in fact, one sitting over next to us right there. Yeah. Uh, there is one right in Legitimate. He just admitted it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you may want your money for rent, but no, really, we're here to protect you. We're the good guys. And then the second piece I would tell you is one thing that real estate, commercial real estate comes back to is really one thing and one thing only. And it's actually the top three things which is location, location, location. I can get you the cheapest rent, but is that where you want to be with your business? I can get you the highest paying rent, but is that the client that's going to be coming through the door that you need to sell your goods to and services? I want to get you located where your business is going to thrive and have the best opportunity 
to accomplish what you're here for because in our end goal, it's to make your business successful. So it does us no good to go get you what you don't need if it doesn't help your business needs. Yeah. You know, Jeffrey, you make the point, which everyone in real estate makes, that location is everything, uh, or at least location is a huge thing. Uh, and one thing that you said there really struck me, and that is you have to optimize the location for your business. The right location is entirely dependent on your specific business, not just your market sector, not just your type of business, but the absolute details of your brand, your customers, your employees, your business operations, the way you're going to run them. Uh, and what works well for you may not be what works well for some other tenant that you're competing with for that lease. And that's a tough thing, I think, for many business owners who are new to this to think about because they haven't had to make those kinds of optimization decisions yet on a really big transaction. And picking your first commercial space is going to be that big transaction where you've got a lot of nebulous factors that you've got to work with and weigh against each other to come up with the best choice. Uh, I know that was tough for me when I picked our first space, and actually I didn't pick very well uh, with our first office location. I learned a lot from that deal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know off of what Jeffrey mentioned because that's that they nailed it. But uh, an important part for and mainly for office users is the attraction and retention of talent, and having that space that they feel comfortable about going to that they can feel invigorated and, and um, just work at a higher level because of the environment that they're working within. And that's, uh, that's really risen up to the top of, of companies. And again, it's not quite as important for an industrial user with, with a distribution center, right? So the office users, the, the talent and the labor are so critical in the, um, as low as the unemployment rate is these days people have the ability to go somewhere else and look around to other employers and the companies are using their office facilities as a driver for that uh, attraction and retention of their talent and it's really an important factor absolutely what are your thoughts on picking a landlord how much stock or weight do you place on uh who the landlord or property manager is when you're advising somebody on whether they should go for a particular property? Well, I mean, that's absolutely one of the key things that we advise them on. And that's the other thing that quite frankly, we bring to the table for them because if you're, if this is your first commercial property or you haven't done that many, you don't know these landlords like we do because we represent multitude of tenants. So we understand who are good landlords. They're going to work with you want to make sure you've got the best deal possible because they want you to be successful because you being there long-term is good for their success or, or the landlords that are, I don't care what happens to you. You're going to pay my rent. And if you don't pay my rent, then you're going to be gone. And so we know the landlords that are easy to work with. We know the landlords that are difficult to work with. And we know the landlords that need certain kinds of structures to make their deals work. But at the end of the day, that's all well and good. We can tell you that. Our goal simply is to make sure that we get you the best you know, opportunity to be successful at that location. And by advising you and being on your side of the table, that's how we accomplish that. And so we give you a game plan, just like you talked about. You know, Here's the game plan of how we think we can best be able to put you where you need to be. This is who we're going to be working up with. And this is the kind of relationship that you may have. And if that doesn't work for you, 
then you need to consider that when you choose the space. And certainly I think that people sometimes don't put as much weight into that. And so, you know, when they talk to the landlord direct, the landlord's like, oh, hey, you know, we don't have a broker. I'm saving that money. You know, I'll give you everything I can give you. Wrong. You know, thank you very much. That's money I saved in my pocket. Thank you very much. I'm going to make sure I get the deal exactly how I want. Thank you very much. Pay your rent. I'll talk to you later. You know, so I think that that's where you really want people to understand. It's not, you know, this is unlike residential. I tell people residential is an emotional purchase. You know, you go in and you find a house and, oh, man, this place, I can just see me raising my kids and living here forever. And it's just really, there's a lot more emotion to it. But when you do commercial, it's, hey, I want my business here and I want to grow and I want to be able to have this business, you know, grow and I want to be able to be profitable. And it's a business decision. But sometimes people don't take, what I would say, enough, you know, process to go through that and have an advisor that can help them with that. And I started commercial estate by selling my business. I owned a chain of coffee shops. I learned like you did the hard way. I thought I could negotiate these businesses on my own and wound up with some bad leases. And so then when I got ready to, somebody offered to buy my business, I had a great mentor that said, you should go into commercial real estate because you could really be an advisor. And so I have a passion for helping businesses. And that's what my passion is about. And that's why I'm with Cressa. And so that's what we do every day. We want you to be successful in your business. And that's why we're here. That's critically important. And that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that the attitude of mutual success that you're talking about, uh, that some landlords have, but not all, uh, I also feel is critical to the success, especially of a brand new business that's going into their first space, because often that's a really critical time for an entrepreneur. Capital. Yeah, you're short <laughs> on capital. And I would imagine you recall from your earlier coffee shop days, uh, trying to expand and getting your first few locations up, uh, you're always operating right at the edge of what you're able to swing. That's the whole point. As soon as you can swing the expansion, you're going to do it. And that puts you in a bind as a as a small business owner to be right on the edge of your financial capabilities and right at the edge of your comfort envelope with the scope of the transaction you're getting yourself into. And if you've got a landlord who genuinely understands and believes that your future success is their future success, then it's likely to work out. But as you're well aware, there are plenty of landlords who instead structure their deals, especially with new small business owners so that it is favorable for the tenant to default, or at least neutral for the tenant to default. Often the landlord ends up taking a newly refurbished space that someone's put a bunch of TI money into, and they may well be able to turn around and lease that as a turnkey suite to somebody else real easily. And in fact, it may be easier for the landlord to kick out the first person who did that TI and bring somebody else in to occupy and operate that space right afterwards. And I know there are, in fact, unscrupulous landlords who pursue situations where they think that will occur. But thankfully, you can avoid it by exactly. getting an advisor at Cressa. <laughs> for you. That's right. You're hitting all the hot buttons. At the end of the day, it's like I tell people, you want what's best for your business and you want a partner and you have to look at your landlord as your partner who has your best interests at heart. With that said... Don't be too altruistic in thinking that they're going to have that for you. You're going to need to negotiate that. But if you negotiate it and both parties get to what you understand as lawyers, right? And you understand if both parties can negotiate to the best happy medium, then when things happen, which they do like COVID-19 and pandemics 
and things that, that really we don't foresee, then that way both parties have a fighting chance to continue forward. And I think that's what, at the end of the day, you have to be planning ahead. And once you sign that lease, that's it. It's a legal binding document, and that's what you agreed to. And I think people need to understand the severity of that, that when you sign that legal binding document, you are basically pricking your finger and putting blood on there because guess what? Most of the, the people are starting out like I did and you did. Guess what we're signing up for? A personal guarantee, which means yep. if you fall, I'm coming after all your personal assets. If you don't think landlords will do that, you better think again. So <laughs> those are things that you need to keep in mind when you're going in to, to get a space. Well, and if I could build on that too, I mentioned earlier, it's more than just the rental rate and, and some tenant improvement dollars. Where we come in and our experience and knowledge and, and knowing that there could be challenges that come up over the term of that lease, lease terms are typically three to seven years, and that's a long time. And a lot of things could happen to the business, both good and bad. And there's ways that we can negotiate certain clauses into the lease in the tenant's favor to address those types of things. One of them would be if things are going well, you have rights of first refusal to expand next door because the cost to knock down a wall and match the carpet up is a lot cheaper than needing to relocate your entire operation to a different facility <clears throat> and all the disruption that that causes. Um, options to terminate. We are successful in negotiating, uh, you know, if you're signing a seven-year lease, as an example, after five years, you have the option to terminate that lease. And there's, uh, you know, there's typically small penalty fees, but that penalty fee compared to the remaining two years of rental obligation is, uh, is a fraction of the, of the cost. And Jeffrey, I'll let you touch on it. Uh, this is something that you had spearheaded, but the, the language about what happens during a pandemic. Uh, and we have language that we are now negotiating towards to be included in the lease that the rent is deferred during the time that there's a, uh, what's, so there's a pandemic or things that are a natural force that are out of your control shelter in place and so you know we crashy were one of the, the first pioneers to actually get COVID-19 language inserted in leases that was tied to really what the states were allowing so if they if they were only allowed to be at 10% capacity well then you owe 10% of your rent yeah you know? I mean it should be tied to whatever whatever is allowable by the state guidelines is what you should be liable for and that was language that we crafted, and now we've been inserting into the leases going forward. And so I think these are things that we're absolutely dialed into. And another thing that Jason had, you know, been talking about, and you sort of alluded to how sometimes landlords want to get a certain tenant out because maybe they got a better tenant they want to bring in. Well, the, another common clause that's in a lot of leases that people don't get is when the landlord says, when you're done with your lease, I want you to return it to its original uh, condition. And you sign that lease and you think, okay, no problem. You know, I'm going to build out my little pizza shop here and I'm going to do all these tenant improvements. And I got done with my three-year lease and I want to renew. And the landlord comes and says, well, I don't want to renew your lease. You're going to have to leave. And oh, by the way, I want to return to the original condition, which was gray shell or vanilla shell, which means you're going to take out all this equipment. You're going to make sure that all the walls are back to the condition you got it. There's going to be nothing in here and you're going to pay to do that. You know how much that can cost you? And look at, look at, Clause 26, because that's where you, you sign that you agree to that. 
So, right? Exactly. And it's already in there. And you haven't looked at that lease for five years. So, Or even worse, it was, re- it was built out as retail when you came in and you demoed the retail to build your pizza shop. Exactly. And they had a retail tenant. <laughs> so those are all the little things that, there again, we don't expect people to know this because... The, you know, when you're talking about your first phase, but it, you know, this is stuff that comes up. All these are things that we're looking for. These are hot buttons. Building in your options for renewal, so that if you want to stay, you've got an option to do that. I mean, these are simple things to us, but we understand for a lot of people, these are these can be life changing impacts to their businesses. And so that's what we go through to make sure that all those things are addressed and they're in your favor. You know, it's really interesting on the COVID nineteen language that you're talking about. Those kinds of provisions. This has been a huge hot topic in the whole legal community, especially oh, yeah. real estate law. Uh, I've just been getting probably two emails a day uh, advertising CLEs and conferences regarding dealing with commercial leasing and COVID-19. And the big thing that's come up, and, and also insurance coverage, and the big thing that's come up is this whole situation, the problem that business owners face with a government-mandated closure or partial closure is something that... I think it's fair to say nobody really anticipated before this because both business interruption policies and also lease language completely failed to address the possibility that the government might allow you to keep operating, but only at a tiny fraction of your prior capacity, or that you might legally be allowed to run your business, but be physically prevented from doing so because people aren't allowed to come in your front door. So you get this situation where nobody's business interruption policy pays. And also where force majeure clauses don't apply because you are able to continue paying your rent in a technical sense. The obligation to pay rent can be satisfied because if you've got enough cash sitting around, you can just keep paying rent while your business suffers. So you're not actually unable to comply with the lease obligation and your business is not actually interrupted as a result of an infectious disease on your premises, which is the typical clause in uh, an interruption policy, if it even offers any kind of coverage for that. But instead, you're just unable to make the revenue that you would have made because of this huge screw up uh, by society and our response to it. (laughs) So now everyone's talking about how do we solve this going forward and what do we need to put into our contracts and how does insurance need to handle this? In my experience so far, I have not found a single client with an interruption policy that will pay or with a lease that actually compels the landlord to suspend collection of anything, but have been able to negotiate with good landlords to get good outcomes and have been unable to negotiate with bad landlords to great detriment. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that varies. That goes back to our original conversation of know who you're going to be. As I tell my tenants, this is who you're getting married to for the next three to five to seven years. And so if the divorce comes, you better make sure that you've got a division of assets that protects you and protects you know, your interests. Because if you don't, then it's it's going to not be a pleasant experience. So <laughs> that's for sure. I think that's where you know, we're trying to make sure that we're out there. And so another thing that I spearhead is I am the head of our uh, webinars that are focused on COVID-19 and the impact in the workplace. But what makes us different is we're not a bunch of consultants that I've got up on webcams, you know, telling you what I think you should do based on my experience. We actually are bringing in our clients and having them talk about our first one was HR related. So we had HR professionals who were talking about this is how we handled the COVID outbreak in our facility. This is what we did. This is how we have to go 
do contact tracing. This, these, are, these are the things that we have to do. And so we're trying to spearhead that to give people real working knowledge. They're really in the office or the industrial setting and then are able to give them true feedback. And so that's an initiative I spearheaded. It's the last Wednesday of every month. Uh, and then the other thing is I handle our Latin American portfolios for Cressa. So I'm working you know, in Mexico all throughout. Uh, we've got a lot of deals down there. And you know, Mexico was hit after us with COVID. So Mexico is now the fifth worst uh, country in the world when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, their president, like our president, said, go ahead and go out. Don't worry. It'll all work itself out. Well, it didn't work itself out. So now they're you know, really having a hard time with COVID. I, I mentioned that because it just comes back to understanding what's going on in your marketplace and whether it's a pandemic or it's a local issue, you want to have somebody that really has the experience and is bringing there again that knowledge to you because knowledge can be acquired, right? You don't have to be born with it. You just have to acquire it. So pick the right people to acquire it from. And the landlord isn't the one you want to acquire it from. <laughs> Man. Speaking of acquiring knowledge from landlords, uh, <laughs> one thing I pointed out on prior episodes of the podcast is that when you jump into being a commercial tenant for the first time, uh, it's totally different than leasing a residence because nobody cares about you and you have no protections whatsoever. If you're leasing from a giant multi-billion dollar international company, you're going to be held to the exact same standard as that gigantic landlord company when it comes to your level of sophistication in understanding the contract and your compliance with its terms. There are no consumer protection rules or case law even that, that will help you out. you're not a consumer. You're not a consumer. You're a business. <laughs> and if you're a business, you're a business. And it doesn't matter how big or small or new or old you are. You're all held to the same standard in the same big pool full of sharks. So... <laughs> Be a shark, be a dolphin. But you better be a shark or you're going to get yeah. eaten by one. That's a great white, so you better be ready because they got to be your bite. So you're absolutely right. That's a great way to put it. So when it comes to negotiating those terms, uh, very often in my experience, you're working with some really good salespeople on the other side. Everyone who's in commercial real estate like that is a very good sales personality. And they want you to lease and they want you to sign on the terms that they want to propose. And so you're going to go to lunch and you're going to go to dinner and you're going to see the place and you're going to have some meetings and, and they're going to say a bunch of stuff to you about how great this is. What do you guys think about all that stuff the landlord's going to tell you? <laughs> uh, you have to question all of it. You have to push on it. It, it, it can be very confusing. Just the, the different types of rates that are out there and the terms that you may have heard, full service gross or modified gross or triple net and cam expenses and all these things. Just that aspect of alone which can vary from building to building, they're all different, um, can, can lend to confusion about what, what am I actually paying, what's included in this, and, who, and another part of it is who's going to be responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of the building over the term. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of understanding and reviewing those clauses in, in great detail to get a... Get a uh, a, a, an assurance of what you thought it was and whether or not that actually is, is transmitted into the, the, the contract, the lease. 
That last point there is a critical one. Um, of course, all of these lease contracts include a merger clause, which is the clause that says this document is the entire agreement on this subject uh, and that there are no prior agreements and everything we've said and talked about prior to signing this document is null and void. Only this document governs. And in commercial leasing especially, that is absolutely correct. You better believe that that clause means what it says. Uh, nothing that you negotiated in advance matters unless it is in that contract in writing exactly the way you meant it. <laughs> so complicated. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about to touch on is square footage. Yeah. Um, it's always such a tricky thing when people are going from residential to commercial. So will you explain that to our listeners, why it's different and why you care? <laughs> It depends. If you're a single tenant in one building, the square footage is pretty straightforward. When it becomes a bit confused, confusing, we're, we're sitting here at 24th and Camelback. We're in an 11-story building. There's different tenants on every floor. There's a building lobby. There's elevator shafts. There's stairwells. There's the common restrooms. That's where it becomes a little confusing because you have your space that you're leasing and that's a certain square footage but the building is the total building is made up of more than just the space that each tenant is leasing those lobbies the elevator shafts and, and common restrooms and so forth so the difference is really your usable square footage what you're using within the four walls that you unlock the door to but what you're paying rent on is the rentable square footage which each tenant takes their proportionate share of all of those common areas that you need to get access to your space. So um, that, that's really the easiest way to explain it is that the landlord's still going to get paid rent on those common areas. And they're just added into the usable square footage that you're actually leasing. So I, I think that that's what you were touching on, but that's a, common misunderstanding like well how come my space is 4,000 square feet but I'm paying on 4,700 square feet and yep. that's why you need to, uh, the landlord's going to get paid on all of that space yeah and then one of the things we like to do when we close the lease is we actually buy our tenants a square uh, shoe so then they know what a square foot is and then that's, <laughs> I'm sorry no <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, people are always shocked when, you know, they rent a, a commercial building and they're told the square footage is 4,700 square feet and they get in and they're ready to measure and they've already bought stuff and they get in there and they only have, you know, 3,800. And it's like, yeah, no, how it's measured in your lease is totally different. <laughs> well, what we usually see is the opposite, you know, and, and there again, when I say we see it, where I think that if you don't have the right commercial advisor... You know, there again, it's like anything. I mean, you can pick the right advisor or the right person, even if they work in the same industry. So what we see is the people that don't really understand how triple nets work or modified or gross leases. And they go sign, they say, oh, yeah, you're going to get 2,000 square feet. And they go sign that lease thinking, I just did 2,000 square feet. And then their first bill shows up, they're paying, you know, 2,000 plus the extra 400, 500. And they come back and say, hey, how come I'm paying for this? You told me I was getting 2,000 square feet. Oh, well, that's uh, that's in addition to, well, you didn't tell me that. I didn't understand that. That's the worst position you want to be in because you just budgeted, you just budgeted that, hey, I can afford 2,000 square feet at this rate. 
oh, but now you're going to add an extra 500 square feet. And that could, back to your point, this new business, that could break the bank pretty quick. Absolutely. I certainly have had a number of potential clients contact me thinking that they're getting screwed over by their landlord. They move in, get their first billing from the landlord and end up calling an attorney. Like these guys are screwing me. What's, what's going on here? This is $1,500 a month more than what we agreed on. I look at it. Yeah, actually, this is accurate. It's a triple net lease. Did you look at what your cams were going to be? Did you talk about what the cams were likely to be? Um, And many people were unfamiliar with the fact that, you know, it's it's totally different than a residential lease. If you lease a house from somebody, the landlord maintains it and they maintain it at their own expense. That's the critical part. All of that maintenance is the landlord's financial responsibility as well as their physical responsibility. Well, in commercial leasing with one of the more common lease types, a triple net lease, the landlord may be performing a fair bit of maintenance. You also have to perform a fair bit of maintenance. There's a division of that responsibility, but you have to pay the landlord for the maintenance the landlord does. Basically, every single expense involved with that property, every single thing, every dime that that landlord has to spend on that property, the tenants must pay for. You like that pretty fountain? (laughs) It's going to be extra. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Worst case scenario, I've seen where they come back and they hand you a bill that is, I had one one tenant, quite frankly, the guy had a bill for $40,000. What what are you talking about? And he said, well, we had to redo the AC units. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had to restripe everything. We had to repave everything. We do that every five years. You have to sign your lease uh, when it was a few years ahead of that. And sorry, but here's your new bill because your pro rata share is this. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that if you don't understand how that works, you know, that can just put you almost out of business. And I think that's where we also have to understand. So let's go to a deeper dive, right? So this is where landlords got smart because what we used to negotiate is we're going to put a cap on your triple net. You're only going to be able to go grow by 2% a year. Well, landlords got smart and came back and said, well, you can put a cap, you know, on my controllable expenses on my CapEx, but you can't put it on my non-controllable expenses. (laughs) What's that? Oh well, you know I can't, con- you know I can I can't control taxes. I can't control, uh, you know, insurance. I can't control. So I just got to pass that through to you. Uh, but the things I can control, I might be able to put a cap on. That's where if you don't understand those things, they can wind up really costing you uh, pretty big. Yeah, especially when the controllable expenses make up about 15 percent of the total expenses being passed through. Right. All the big bills are are non controllable accordingly. But it's um, that's an interesting part. And you, you bring up HVAC too. That is oftentimes a really big item that you really you have to keep a very close eye on it in the way that it's written. And you know, I get ultimately trying to work through that process on the very front end, not negotiating those terms in the lease, but addressing it in the initial proposals and, and letters of intent, even before you get to a lease is what we're typically doing. Um, but you run into some situations of leases that we haven't worked on and we're inheriting them. And, and you see some of them, as Jeffrey mentioned, it's like the last year on a seven year lease and the HVACs need to be replaced. And you look at the lease and it says the tenant is responsible for maintenance and re repair, maintenance, and replacement of the HVACs. And we have, we've had experiences where the tenant is in the last year of their lease term. They've got 10 months left in the lease, 
and they need a new HVAC unit, a useful life of an HVAC unit is 15 to 20 years. And this tenant is going to buy the landlord a brand new HVAC unit because that's the way the lease reads. Mm -hmm. And who's going to enjoy and appreciate that brand new unit after the tenant moves out? For the next 15 years, right? And the, after the, they just spent their whole lease with a failing old unit that's less efficient. <laughs> and they're paying for the electricity to run that inefficient HVAC unit. So yep. it's really um, having a, a, a strong eye and an understanding of, of where those issues can come up. And Well, and having a negotiator, I mean, that's what we negotiate. We yeah. say, hey, landlord, you're going to make sure these are, you're going to do an inspection. We're going to do an inspection. You're going to warranty these units for the life of our lease, five years. And then we're going to put a cap on what our repairs are. It's going to be, you know, 500 per unit. Uh, and so we take care of that up front so that you don't get to that situation. Or here's another one they like to do. We had a client, they're going to just throw out these big numbers so we look really smart. You know, I don't want to look like I'm average, right? I don't want to look like I'm ahead of the class here. So we had a, we had a client whose lease is coming up to expiration. I give Jason the credit because he found it. He said, hey, I want you to take a look at my lease. We're getting ready to exit the building. And how much did you find, Jason, they might get back from the security deposit? $100,000. In a one way, the tenant didn't know this. Do you think wow. he with somebody that you didn't know that you should get that back? That's the kind of stuff that you got to pay attention to because you think the landlord's just going to be like, oh, here's your security deposit back. No, they're not. It gets put in a drawer. No one ever looks at it again. Maybe the expiration date, but that's it. They're not going to read. It was a, the security deposit language was a page and a half long, which is typically you pay me $100,000 and I keep it. But this went on and on and on and on. And I'm reading through. And sure enough, after the second anniversary, so long as tenant has not been in default, which they were not, never in default, they need to submit a letter. Here's what you write. Here's how da, 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 the whole thing. And they're like, what? A hundred? We can get that back? And I'm like, yeah. But go, but my attorney friend, tell him what, what, what was the key in that statement. This is what you have to do to get that money back. We're you not have to actually do the things. The exact thing. Exactly that thing. If you don't do that, I'll have to give you your money back. Right? Exactly. And that also applies to uh, procedures for executing options. Man, if you've got a 180-day lead time on executing your option, you better calendar that the day you sign the lease. Because if you blow that date by one day, they are not bound to give you your option. You're back to negotiating from scratch. Exactly. Well, and on an option, this is another thing that they're going to give Jason credit for was he found on the option that they had to give their notice by January of this year. But what they wrote in there was that if both parties couldn't come to an agreement on the negotiation by April of that year, that the option was null and void and went away. If you don't read that little tidbit, guess what? You think I notified you that I want my option and I have six months. Oh, no, buddy, you got three months to get that figured out because it goes, man, both parties don't agree. Ouch. These are the guys on the wall protecting the good guys out there. That's right. Man. And you know. Can I get a lot of love out there? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, this gets back to what we were discussing uh, kind of at the beginning here. And that is that clause that you're referring to was drafted by the landlord's attorney. 
And the only real purpose for those kinds of provisions is to create a situation that tricks people into losing an option. It's underhanded. It's it's really pretty underhanded, but you see that a lot. I've seen that probably in half of the leases I've reviewed. There's something like that where a procedure has been created that is obviously intended to cause someone to overlook it and lose something as a result. Uh, it's very common for that to be done, and it's totally intentional. Well, and what you lose is your negotiating power, right? Because now I stroll into April, we're not in agreement. I'm like, oh, I got three more months to figure this out, this guy. And then they contact you and say, hey, we didn't come to an agreement. Your option is gone. Well, wait, wait, wait. I want to be here. Well, sorry. You know what? You either agree to what we're giving you or you're out of here. I mean, what it does is it takes away all your negotiating opportunities, all your leverage. That kind of a situation is essentially the mistake that I made in my very first commercial lease when we first opened the law firm. Uh, And that was almost a decade ago at this point. But I learned that lesson immediately in that first one-year term that you cannot rely on your counterparty to negotiate really in good faith in the sense of being a a nice, friendly uh, entity to do business with that's going to give you a fair shake. They're there to make money from you. That's right. the point. And they will do that. <laughs> the two parties have opposite interests. And that's yes. where <laughs> one of my favorite, just to close the loop on renewal options, is one of my favorites is, you know, you'll have these clause, the terms of when you need to notify and all these complicated things that, that are in the landlord's favor. And then it will go on to say the rate will be at market rate at that time. Because you know It'll be five years from now, and it'll go on and on. That'll be similar buildings in the in the you know two mile radius and all these other things. And then you get to the very end, and it says, "But but in no event less than the last year's rent." Yeah. No matter where the market is at that time, your rent under this option to renew will not be less than what you're paying in that year five of a five year lease. And it's like, what what was the purpose? of the six paragraphs about market rent ahead of that when it's not going to be less than the last year's rent. And it's just, I love that one and, and just slamming through that and making sure that that's removed on behalf of the tenant, because that makes no sense. The likelihood, as we talked about earlier, the, the cyclical nature of real estate, there's a very good chance that it will be less than the, what you're paying in that last year why would I agree to that? None of us know. It should be based on where market rates are at that time. So that's a, I, I, my eyes go right to try to find that and immediately delete it. Absolutely. <laughs> that said, I mean, I, I will tell you that there were several landlords that when COVID hit and we reached out to them, they were absolutely more than willing to say, hey, let's work on something that works for your yeah. client. Uh, we want to keep them here. They've been a good tenant. So, you know, I don't want this to be a bash session on all landlords. There's some really good landlords out there that really do care about their tenants and really want them to, to be successful. And they were willing to step up during this time. So they're out there. And I think that's the what you t- touched on earlier is you want to find those landlords. Because then when stuff yes. happens, that's who you want to be dealing with. You want to be dealing with the one who's like, sorry, you're out of luck. You're, we're going to go by what the lease says. I'd rather be with the person that says, hey, let's work through this together and figure out What's a good solution so that we can get to where we need to be? Absolutely. Um, I would agree with that entirely. I, in, in the clients that I've dealt with on these kinds of issues, 
Uh, I've found that there are a few property managers and landlords around town who consistently are easy to work with and make good, fair deals. And they're great. And I refer people to them when they're looking for space. And then there are other commercial landlords and property managers in town who I strongly advise clients never to do business with. Yeah. Amen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they, so you want to be on the, you want to be on the good list, not the naughty list. Yeah, absolutely. Twice price. <laughs> so, so what right. about buying a property instead of leasing it? I mean, if somebody's going to move from a home-based or remote work business into their first commercial space, when should they consider owner-occupying? Well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. We actually have industrial conference calls every month. And today's conference call was this morning. And to your point, one of the things that was brought up was we now have a tool that uh, we're able to put in an analysis that shows whether you should lease or you should buy the asset. And it markets right. to the cost, to the cap rates that are in the market, to what the outlay of your capital is, to what situation you should be in. And these are the sophisticated models that a Cressa brings to the table. So just like we talked about earlier, Cressa is the world's largest occupier-centric firm in the world. We have over 90 offices around the country. We have over 2,200 people uh, within our company. And that gives us strength to provide those type of high-level models. But to your point, absolutely, we can sit down with our tenants and say, okay, if you really think you want to buy this property, let's plug this in here. And this is what this is going to tell you. And this is a guide that's going to be financial, a financial model that's based on, do you have what it takes to take down this property? And do you have the amount of capital it takes to be able to support and sustain that? Because everybody wants to buy, but sometimes that's just not the right opportunity for you. And the other piece we advise our clients on is, let's say you purchased a property, but now you need capital in your company, or maybe the market's red hot. So let's go ahead and sell your property, do a sell lease back because you still want to be in the property. But you go ahead and take advantage of getting the gain from that. And then you get a lease that's structured the way you want it. And then the buyer that buys that gets what they want, which is a market rate deal. These are things that we bring to the table. And absolutely, we can assist people in making that analysis to make the best decision. I just add on to that, that uh, depending on the growth trajectory of the company, um, it, it would probably lean more towards leasing in that sense, because if you're expecting to double in size over the next five years, uh, buying a property might not be as well suited for you as leasing because the lease terms could be much shorter. Um, You're not at risk of not finding buyers for the property if you own it when you need to get out and double in size. So depending on your expectations as a business owner and how quickly you anticipate growing, uh, leasing and buying, that, that would be part of the discussion in, in determining whether to buy or lease. And I think the big one that came out a couple years ago was there's a giant uh, county change in GAP principles. Uh, and so what they did is they said that you no longer could be able to lease a property and not be able to show it as a liability on your books. So the reason that leasing was better for companies was because you didn't have to show that as a liability. And <laughs> Oh, yeah, hey, great, man. At least it's probably not make it as a liability against my books. And so a lot of companies would actually prefer to lease than to buy, but they changed that. So now it doesn't matter if you lease or you buy, you're going to show that on your books as a liability. And so these are the things that we stay in tune with 
so that you can make those decisions and understand that, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to buy a property, it's because that long-term asset holds value for you and helps you with your company. To Jason's point, if you need capital to grow your business, you don't want to have it tied up in a bunch of real estate. You want to be able to be nimble, mobile, be able to execute, move forward, and leasing may be a better strategy. And to your point, if you're a brand new company, don't go buy a building because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And then you get stuck with that building and it may outgrow your needs like that, or it may, you may want to get out of it. And so, you know, there again, I would just advise people, it's like anything, if you can lease it and try it out and it works, then perfect the model first, especially if you're a new, younger company. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, we leased our first space and didn't enjoy that leasing experience. Uh, and in fact, that leasing experience is what led me into commercial real estate law representing business owners. Uh, through that experience, I thought, you know, people need help with this. Uh, this is not something that they can just jump into. I'm an attorney with a business background and with existing real estate experience. And I walked into some traps and had a bad time. <laughs> Uh, so I, I just boned up on it like crazy over the next couple of years and learned what needed to be learned in order to help people through that. And, uh, it's, it's tough, but then from there we purchased a building and renovated it completely and built our office in it. And I love owning it. And it's been a great investment. It's, it's absolutely worth a lot more than I've got in it. But that last point that you were making about having your capital free and being able to be flexible and get in and out of a space when your business demands it. I'm up against that right now. I would like to get my money out and I would like to be able to be more flexible with the space I'm using and how I'm using it. And I don't have that choice because I own the place. So there are upsides and downsides to everything. Um, and honestly, when I asked you whether someone should should buy or rent, I was anticipating kind of a, uh, a wishy-washy principles-based response. And instead what I got is, you guys have an incredibly complicated system of computer-driven analytics <laughs> <laughs> that helps make that that uh, that question for real. And I got to say, um, that is the level of sophistication that's required to come to a clear conclusion about that question. Uh, and I don't know anybody else who's doing it that way. There may be some other big players who are, but that's certainly not a calculation that small business owners can do themselves. That's really hard to analyze with an awful lot of variables. <laughs> well, and I would say that was, that's our secret sauce, right? Because yeah. when, you about it, when you say big companies, yeah, the other, you know, our competition, the, the evil empire that represents landlords, they'll do that for their landlords because they, they're all about cash flow models. They're all about modeling. But remember, everything we do is centric around what? Our tenants are occupiers. Yes. Every resource we develop is that our models are for you. I want to make sure that whatever I invest is going to make your business decision. We started that out that way. I want you to make the best business decision to be successful in what you're doing. Those models, everything that we pour in is based on making sure that we're giving that to our end client, which is really, that's what we're here for. And I think that that's what makes us really special and really sincere in what we do. It's why I'm with Cressa. It's why, you know, I, I think you and I have a lot similar in our backgrounds where, you know, we learned the hard way in owning our own companies and we both dedicate ourselves to help businesses by, you know, being in these type of arenas, you with the law, me with the real estate. And I think that's what makes us special. And really, at the end of the day, I hope that people take this and they use it for their better good because that's what it's about. 
Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So big picture questions. You know, we've got this pandemic happening. So what is going to be the impact on the commercial real estate industry in general? I mean, there's the REI issue, the Pinterest issue. You know, a lot of these major companies are pulling out of commercial real estate. So what do you think will happen? I think the the court is still in session on that, on the work from home effort and whether or not that's going to continue. Um, I think a lot of people want to come back to the office, want to collaborate with their teams. Uh, in my case, want to get away from the kids for a little while, but um, I, that that that's going to be determined over time. What I think is is something that we can have our sights on is the the space itself, and I'm speaking office space in particular here is going to be altered. Um, you know, the six by six workstations and elbow to elbow and call centers is is unlikely to come back as it's been. But going beyond that, the collaborative collaborative areas of the office, the conference rooms, the kitchen and break rooms. Uh, those types of areas, too, are, are going to be impacted. And that's where we're able to lean on our contacts and resources within the architectural and design areas. And, and not only that, but within our own company, uh, the work workspace um, uh, professionals that are within our firm to advise through all of those challenges. Because it, it's, it can't stay the same. It is going to need to be altered and remodeled. And I think we can add a lot of um, insight and uh, advice in that regard. So I think that's one of the biggest impacts. Yeah. And so I would just add into that, you know, from a big perspective uh, is I would just say that when you look at from an industrial standpoint, uh, industrial is blowing and going. And a lot of that's because people are shopping more online and there's just more need for, you know, that type of distribution system. So industrial is absolutely staying red hot in the market. Medical is expanding just because we have an aging population, and so it's expanding. The big question is office, which Jason was alluding to. I would submit to you and talking to the clients that we have, we have hardcore CEOs going to the office, have been going to the office every day with COVID, who are now saying, I do not see our office coming back to more than, if, at best case scenario, 50% occupancy. Yeah. And realistically, might be 30% occupancy. So what that means is that that model has changed because what we're doing right now has been proven to absolutely be able to have people work from home, right, and be able to be productive. And so at the end of the day, that model, that's going to be the new norm for us. We will not go back to 100% you know, office spaces. There will be a workflow and there will be people that will come in and there will be people that will work from home and they may trade off. And that's going to be the new norm going forward. And I truly believe that that's what you'll see, you know, coming out of this pandemic. But in, in a lot of senses, it's going to make us, I believe this is making us a much closer, you know, not trying to get too altruistic here. But I think the pandemic, the, the lesson I've tried to learn from it is we're becoming closer as a human race because we've had to, right? We've had to well work from home. We've had to be more in contact with our families. And now we're trying to figure out how we stay in touch with each other. And so I think people are more dialed into that. So that's the altruistic side of it. I think office is a whole new norm and we're going to watch that evolve over the next 12 months. Do you think that that reduction in capacity is going to be relatively even at different sizes of occupancies? Is this something that affects 
big class A tenants, Fortune 500 type, type companies more than it does small and mid-sized local businesses? Or is that something you're, you think we're going to see across the board? No, it's across the board. I mean, your wife mentioned it. I mean, she, it's REI, you know, which is building brand headquarters. Guess what? We're done. So what yeah. we're seeing is large companies are going to go to a hub and spoke model. So now I'm going to break up my big corporate campus. I'm going to go be around the valley. I'm going to have four or five sites. And you're going to be able to drive in that site. And I don't have to have as much space because it's less people and I can space you out. Smaller companies, same thing. They're going to have to figure out how do I get people to be able to work from, stay working from home virtually, but coming into the office maybe a couple days a week and we figure out a schedule that works so that people are comfortable. Because I don't think anybody wants to be the person saying, oh, you have to come in the office and I don't care if you're worried about contracting COVID. I don't think anybody wants to be on that that news station, right? (laughs) At the end of the day, it's going to affect all the way from small to large. And I would just say, watch how this plays out over the next 12 months. It's going to be fascinating. Well, I'll tell you, that's those are pretty much my predictions. You've got a whole lot more data to work with than I do. But my thoughts were, I, I think it's uniform size-wise and geographically. Both of our firms, very small businesses, just a handful of employees, are work from home. We still have our office spaces, but we only send one person there at a time and not all the time. And uh, I hear that from my clients of all sizes. And of course, we've all seen the news on the very large companies abandoning their brand new office spaces. Um, It's going to be an interesting shift. (laughs) Absolutely. Part of that cyclical cycle. Cyclical cycle. Yeah, (laughs) I said that out loud. To bring out the the change in all of us. So, you know, extraordinary times. And so we stand at really at the threshold of where we think we can, you know, help guide and impact this, but certainly none of us have ever dealt with this. And so it's like, we're all learning on the fly, right? Absolutely. Well, we're coming to the end of our hour here. We've got just about a minute left. So before we go off the air, uh, I'd like to have both of you guys tell people how they can get in touch with you uh, and just remind everyone what it is that you do and who your clients are. Well, I would just say I'm Jeffrey Garza Walker. And if you want to get in touch with me, go to LinkedIn and look up Jeffrey Garza Walker's profile and you'll get to see all the amazing stuff that we're doing and the webinars. Uh, That is really the best way to contact me. I'd like people to go to my LinkedIn because you can find out a lot about me and and our company. And I think that that's really the best medium to go to. So if you want to get a little bit more about Cressa, go to Cressa.com and you'll get more information than you ever imagined. Yeah, Cressa does have a uh, page for Phoenix as well. And, um, you know, same for me, Jason Malcolm and LinkedIn. And uh, that's the best way. To Jeffrey's point, just learn a little bit more about the uh, individual and the person and uh, schools and, and so forth. Go Devils. Excellent. And I'm Mike Poulton, again, with the law firm Poulton and Arroyan. We do small business law and litigation here in Central Phoenix. Uh, You can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro. And uh, Rochelle, you want to give everyone your info? Yeah, I'm Rochelle Poulton with Arizona Credit Law Group and XFIRM. And you can find me online at xfirmlaw.com. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, Rochelle Poulton. It's Google it. You'll find it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Legitimate. And we will talk to you next time. 